What's up, everyone? Welcome to my corner of the internet. I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and this is Crossover Commerce, presented by Ping Pong Payments, the leading global payments provider helping sellers keep more of their hard-earned money. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Crossover Commerce. I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and this is my corner of the internet where I bring the best and brightest in the Amazon and e-commerce industry. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us live on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Or if you're listening to us on replay, thank you for listening to us on your favorite podcast nation. You know those places, the Google Podcasts, the Amazon Musics, the Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to us. We hope to bring you some valuable insight and some uh, great information in today's episode. Today's episode 20, I'm going to say 7, 7, 207. Uh, so with that, every single episode, as always, Crossover Commerce is presented by Ping Pong Payments. Who's Ping Pong Payments? Well, Ping Pong Payments is helping sellers and entrepreneurs keep more of their hard-earned money. That could be in forms of sending international payments to your VAs, suppliers, your manufacturers, or if you're an Amazon seller and you're selling in places like marketplaces like Canada, Mexico, the UK, uh, Japan, you're going to be receiving international currency and you're going to save some money by using ping pong payments instead of the Amazon services that they opt you into. You can save money, put that towards your bottom line, make yourself more profitable. So when you exit your business, you look good on paper, which is always what every business entrepreneur is going to do. Go ahead and check out ping pong payments for free. Just go to usa.pingpongx.com forward slash podcast to be notified of future episodes, but also sign up for free today. It's really simple, really easy to use. Make sure you tell the team that you heard about us on Crossover Commerce. That being said, again, episode 207. This is, uh, like I said, if you're new to Crossover Commerce, we appreciate you joining and spending a little time with us today. As always, we like to, I'm going to continue D-Week. If you listened to us yesterday, all my guests this week have the, or at least a lot of them start with the letter D, but we're not going to... uh, derive too much from that, but every episode in Crossover Commerce, we talked a little bit about different types of products or uh, services or even just topics in general on Amazon in that space. And I really like to learn about new and up and coming services and products that are really going to make your life a lot more simple on Amazon. Again, as you probably know, what I've been touting these past 207 episodes, uh, 206, now 207, is time is the is the currency you can't waste in the space, especially being an entrepreneur. You have to move quick. You have to move effectively, and you have to think through everything. But utilizing tools and services that are out there to apply towards your business super important to do. So that being said, found out found a really cool product that I think is going to bring a lot of uh, insight and success for a lot of Amazon sellers out there and entrepreneurs in general. And that is Aura, and we're going to be talking with one of the co-founders and uh, one of the main operators of the business today, really talking about repricing strategy and optimization on Amazon. So without further ado, I want to bring on Dylan Carter of Aura. Thank you for joining us on Crossover Commerce, Dylan. Brian, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no problem. You're joining us uh, again from where? Like, go ahead and let me let me get the background of you and the team. I appreciate you joining sure. us today, but uh, where are you joining us from? So we're actually in downtown Boston. Okay. Downtown yeah. Boston. Okay. So you've been there the whole time or how long has the company been there? Like, give me a little bit, uh, a quick background on yourself in, in the company. There. Sure. Yeah. So we actually started the company fully remote. Um, my co-founder James and I actually met on Instagram. We were running separate businesses uh, back then and uh, we started working together, worked together for a year and a half um, on, on the business before meeting in person. We were both in school full-time in, in college and uh, we actually flew out or I flew out to his his campus between semesters and we actually launched a software together, which was cool. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've been running the company about three coming up four years now, and we eventually moved to Boston about a year and a half ago. So yeah, we were a very lean bootstrap team. It was really just him and I for a long period of time. And then we really started to kind of hit our strides and grow. Um, and we started to build a team and we really wanted to go deeper into the product and engineering side and what better place than Boston, because, you know, one amazing talent, amazing companies here, but also it's not as expensive as the Valley. So right. <laughs> it, uh, it seemed to be a good fit. I'm an East coast kid. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've been here for the past year and a half, uh, maybe a year and a half plus a few months. Nice. The, yeah. the East coast Silicon Valley, if you will, lots of great companies coming out of, 
uh, Boston. So that yeah. is really awesome. So what, what made you guys get in the software? Were you an Amazon seller? Like what, what was that nature of, oh yeah, we're just going to build software one day as students. Like what, what was that conversation yeah. like? Is that crazy? Is that something that was out of necessity? What, what's that journey like for you guys? Yeah. So, um, to kind of go a few steps back, I was a personal trainer full time. I had not started uh, school at, at the at the time there as well. And so I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. For me, like I always wanted to run my own company. Um, but it's like I kept coming back to the scale question, right? Like, how, how far does this really scale? And being a personal trainer is incredibly fulfilling and it's awesome. But to make more money and to grow personally and professionally, you got to charge your client base more, um, cause there's only so many hours in the day. And so I, I had this weird conundrum with that. And so I decided, you know what, doesn't make sense. Let me start testing a bunch of different things and eventually found uh, retail arbitrage on, on a, a podcast, like most Amazon sellers do. I tested it on the weekends. It was like, cool. I made money. That's kind of interesting. It's, it's a real thing. It's not this magic internet money kind of thing. And I, I kind of just tripled down on that. I decided, you know what, I'm not going to continue on as, as a personal trainer. I could have you know, left the gym I was training at. I was an independent contractor at a different gym. Could open my own, done at home, you know, travel, but I, I just didn't really want to. So I went really hard on retail and eventually online arbitrage. I'd buy things at, at retail stores and flip them on Amazon for profit. It was a lot of work, <laughs> like a lot, a lot of work. And most Amazon sellers find themselves at a fork in the road at this point, which is wholesale or private label, All right, So I'm going to go start my own right. brand or I'm going to buy bulk wholesale from actual brands that already exist and then sell it that way. I went the wholesale route because to be honest, I needed to pay the bills. Um, a lot, <laughs> a lot of the private label world, you know, you need multiple at bats, right? Cause you're really making a big bet that this skew, this type of product is going to do well. And then you have to scale that out. Right. So, you're not pulling much capital out within the first year from what I've seen. Wholesale right. is different, right? The listing already exists. The demand is measurable. I can easily see, okay, I can start selling day one. The moment it gets checked in, I'm good. And anything I want to do growth-wise and marketing-wise on top of that is really just gravy, and that's long-term. So that's the route I went. Um, you know, started to do pretty well with that. Um, started to scale that at the time. I had actually got out of a very toxic relationship, um, which was painful, but it's one of those moments in life where you go through the trenches and you realize, cool, if this is what rock bottom feels like, let's, you know, get back on the staircase. So I decided I'm going back to school. Uh, so I had done one semester at this point and, uh, just didn't feel it was right for me. Decided, you know, now I view things differently. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go back to school full time. I'm going to get a finance degree and I'm going to do well. And that's exactly what I did. So I'm running the the wholesale Amazon business. I'm going back to school full time and I'm doing, you know, multiple six figures with the, the Amazon business. Not, not anything to write home about, but you know, it's paying the bills and like, I don't have to get a job. Then I decide, you know, I'm going to reach out to as many people on Am or I'm sorry, uh, on Instagram that are doing what I'm doing at a higher level. So doing seven figures and I'm just going to pay them for their time and say, Hey, you know, what should I be doing to go from, from X to, to Z? Um, and my co-founder was the first one to actually say, Hey, like, let's jump on a call. Don't worry about the money. And, uh, cause he was running a seven figure Amazon business at the time. And so we just started catching up once a week. And then eventually I found out he's a computer science major and he's like, Hey, you know, that process that you've been running, well, I kind of do the same thing. Um, using basically Google sheets, we basically built our own internal CRMs. Um, I built a web application that basically does that, but ties into Amazon's API. Check it out. I'm like, Oh, this is pretty cool. It's like, hey, maybe we should do this together. <laughs> and that's what we did. So, you know, we we ran with that first software. Uh, it was a small CRM for wholesale Amazon sellers. Failed a lot, learned a lot. <laughs> learned. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, certainly. And um, I, again, hit another fork in the road. We decided, you know, let's take on a, a larger challenge, um, something that really has demand, and that was repricing for Amazon third-party sellers. So we said, cool. We're, we're all in. Let's make it happen. James locked himself away for 80 hours a week for the next eight or nine months as the only engineer and built the entire beta himself. Um, lots of cans of Red Bull, um, <laughs> not a lot of sleep. And when we launched, it did well. I mean, day one, we had paying customers. It was fantastic. We're, right? we, we bootstrapped the whole thing. Um, and then I hit a hard fork in the road. It was, hey, this is not a side project thing. This is something we can take very far. And my business, my Amazon business at the time was not in a position 
and I personally wasn't in a position to say, Hey, I'm gonna go hire somebody to take this over and run with it. It's like, eh. <laughs> like why? Like, yeah. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to shut down my profitable Amazon business and we're going to triple down on software. And that's what I did. And it was the best decision I could have made. Um, because I mean, our growth rate has been incredible. Um, we've, I mean, it's been fantastic. It's been awesome. <laughs> and so that's kind of the little mini journey, if you will, of going from wanting to test it out to now I'm actually in the software world. That's amazing. Well, congrats yep. on that success. And thank you. Not everyone. This is, this is the journey that I always feel that sellers like to, like to go on themselves is be successful on Amazon, build that software that applies to them and not using other people's UI or background or anything like that. And they mm -hmm. find that more successful. And you're right. People say, I think there's more opportunity to be a service or a, yeah. as a company like that, instead of maybe selling full-time, nothing wrong with that. I think that's fantastic, which is again, why repressing? I, I guess like of all the things that you can do, yeah. why is repressing the, the problem you guys want to fix? Yeah. There's, there's a few things there. So one, having been sellers, we've used repricing tools. So we, we, we understood the barrier to entry, right? So in what's odd is before we came along, there was two areas for repricing, super, super cheap, but not a lot of performance. We're talking like $25 a month. You get to reprice once every 15 minutes. Okay. You can kind of get in there, but you're really not going to get any ROI for that. Right. My, my analogy here is that it's like, if the, the goal is to win a drag race, so speed is what matters here. And you go get a hot in a civic, but the other person gets a more expensive Ferrari. Yeah, you saved money, but you still lost. So it's irrelevant, right? You, had, you actually had no ROI. So for, for us, that was incredibly important. But then on the flip side, you have very expensive. So, you know, three, four, five hundred dollar a month repricing that would give you access to instant repricing, which is what you need. You you pretty much, if you're not getting instant repricing, there's really no point. So that's a big leap for a lot of newer sellers. But what's interesting is when does it start to matter? When, when should you use a repricing tool? We tend to say around 25 SKUs or $5,000 a month in sales. If you're doing that consistently, you need to have this conversation and think this through because now it's going to start to make sense and have an ROI. So there's a gap, right? It's either I go too cheap and don't really get anything, have a bad taste in my mouth, or I wait too long. And the thing that would have allowed me to scale even quicker I think I can't afford. So we wanted to come in and build something, one that was not cheap, but not expensive. So it's an affordable, valuable play that gives you access to all the advanced stuff, right? Instant repricing, um, you know, advanced strategies, all that stuff, right? Two other things. We realized that in the Amazon space, primarily a lot of your customer support lacks. In the regular SaaS world, customer support is like a pillar, right? It's like, if you don't get this right, nobody cares. Nobody's going to use you. In the Amazon world, there's less focus on that. A lot of times it's outsourced very quickly. The response rates are, you know, terrible. And honestly, the responses themselves make no sense. You're like, you didn't even read what I asked for. So we decided, okay, another pillar for us is going to be that. So the first two years I did customer support myself full time as one of the founders. And we got that perfect dialed in, right? We don't do 24 seven support because we don't have outsourced team members or staff, Finn, who's sitting right over there, does it now daily. And our, you know, uh, median first response time is less than 10 minutes with a satisfaction rating above 95%. Like we set these KPIs and we figured that out, right? So we, we realized that a lot of times when we jumped into support or we jumped into other Amazon selling tools, you kind of feel alone. <laughs> You're like, there's a lot of functionality here. It's kind of advanced um, and dynamic. <sighs> I'm overwhelmed. I don't want that. Right. A newer seller has enough going on to feel overwhelmed about to begin with learning this business model. And honestly, it's a lot of time. And most Amazon sellers have a full time job on top of what they're trying to build. So you don't have the time to figure this out all by yourself. So we wanted to say, hey, listen, if you're ever stuck, we got you covered. <laughs> like, we'll do the work for you, even if we need to. Right. If you're like, hey, I just need a strategy done. It's plugged in. You're live. You're good. So we'll take care of you. Um, so that's that's a, that's number two. Number three really was like usability. I mean, a lot of repricing tools. Listen. Repricing is a very technically complex thing, but that does not necessarily mean that it needs to be as complex and technical for you as the end user. So we wanted to take something that is very complex and technical and through the UI, through the actual user interface, make it comfortable <laughs> and like friendly and not just like, oh my gosh, all the options. So we try to build it in a way that it's like, oh, cool. Within 10 minutes, I can jump in, connect my marketplace, create a strategy, and then I'm repricing now. 
nice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that, that's the thing too, is I've heard again, coming from a software world, I think the funniest thing of the UI, just the biggest difference for a lot of people of the comfortability, mm -hmm. how it looks, how it feels, how easy you can use, yeah. um, and, and, and be able to reorganize, restructure, however you want to, that works best for your business. That's yeah. a big factor for a lot of business owners. So that, that is a huge key. I, I think if someone's mm -hmm. listening to that is why is that a main pillar? It, it does matter. And I've, I've know yeah. <laughs> our company in the past, we've lost customers because the UI was better in another capacity. They might be saving price, but just didn't fit how their functionality and yeah. how their, their look and feel needed to be in order for that. Exactly. To so interesting. Very cool. Yeah. So repressing is kind of an enigma, right? Because a lot of people think like, at what juncture do I need to really consider it? You kind of touched yeah. on that Dylan of, Hey, maybe I don't have too much competition, but maybe I can get really maybe creative with, uh, repressing. Sure. I know in the past we've had repressing people on here and it looks like whether it be competition or obviously inventory is the biggest component, the two cruxes of yeah. why you should have a repressing strategy. So from yeah. you and your team, why do I need a repressing strategy if I'm an Amazon seller? Yeah. So there's two major things that you mentioned and I'll go into each one individually. Um, cause sure. I, I think they should, they should be kind of held, held, held yeah, separate for, for a moment. Yeah, I agree. Um, so the first one, like, why do you need it? Listen, 82, roughly 82% of organic sales come through the buy box. If you have a competitor, not just many one, right? So if there's two of you on there, only one of you at any given moment is capable of, a, of receiving sales through the buy box. Okay. So if 82% of organic sales come through the buy box and you're not in it, you're not getting those sales. And a lot of people will say, well, but people can click through and see others. Okay. Listen, the average consumer on Amazon is not doing that. <laughs> I don't do that. Yeah, and I understand I'm one of I, them. Yeah. No, thank you. Right. One click purchase. Right. So we have to optimize for these things. Another thing to keep in mind. Okay. So we tend to see a 20 to 40% increase in sales volume using repricing. It's 40% if you're going from no repricing at all to repricing. If you're going from a slower to, to, to slower tool, excuse me, to us, we tend to see 20 to 30%. So there's a range here. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it is when it's compounded over time. So another thing to keep in mind, it's not just the sales. That's super important. What else are you avoiding? Long-term storage fees, incredibly important. Your capital liquidity is amazing now. I talk to a lot of sellers where they'll say, you know, I need to go, I need to find $20,000. I'm like, okay, let's look at your inventory first. And you've been holding things for three months. I'm like, there's 30,000 right, right now. <laughs> like, but you just set the price and you left it to kind of take care of itself. Each listing on Amazon is kind of its own mini economy, its own supply and demand formula, right? Prices are fluctuating so frequently. I mean, we're doing hundreds of thousands of price changes per minute. I mean, and we're just a small fraction of the entire marketplace. That's incredible. So to, to say, I'm just going to set it and then once a day I'll update and match the buy box. Good luck. Because once a day is not enough, especially if you're doing a retail or online arbitrage uh, business model where let's say you don't go deeper than 50 units per SKU. You absolutely should be doing this because, yeah, you might, you know, potentially sell at a slightly lower price point. But you got to think about it from a from a managerial accounting perspective, if we can nerd out for a moment. If let's say I lower your price by 20 cents, you're like, oh, I'm losing 20 cents. Yes, but. I sold the unit two weeks before you would have. And in that two weeks, you spent that capital again and got another profit on top of it. So you actually made more money and the compound ROI is dramatically higher. Great. So I'm taking time equity into this. Correct. Present value of money, right? A dollar today is fantastic <laughs> than a dollar tomorrow. Why? Because you can reinvest it. So, um, and I'm a finance major, so, you know, there you go. It's kind of stuff I geek out with. <laughs> So one, it, it literally increases sales and two, it allows you to have more capital liquidity to keep the business moving forward. A lot of times you make a bad buy, it happens, but getting that capital back out more quickly and saying, yeah, I didn't make 600% ROI, which by the way, the average Amazon seller, is it not doing that, you know, consistently, um, taking that and then redeploying it in something more profitable is fantastic. You have more opportunity for increasing your net profits. Incredibly, incredibly important. Um, number three, to be honest, you just don't have the time. <laughs> like 
the even for a small account, the number of price changes we're making per minute is incredibly high. I could not physically, and I'm a pretty fast typer, could not keep up with that demand. Because one, I can't calculate the, the price change I need to make that quickly in my head and then submit it. It's not going to occur, right? So even if you only reprice, let's say once an hour, you manually go in and say match buy box. The problem here is within one hour, you potentially missed out on a large volume of sales and the five units you're currently holding that you just repriced could have already been gone. That's incredible. So there's a huge opportunity there. Um, it, sorry, what the second one we were we were talking about, I was going to transition. What was the second? No, that's that what I was starting to think about though. <laughs> we said two things, but we went down one rabbit hole and I feel like we need to live there. No, well, yeah. let, let me, let me kind of take us like, and, and put in a little sign sure. to that too. There's, there's this equity of which, how often again people think how much how often do i need to to bid or price or reprice my product mm -hmm. if it's one or like you said 25 or sure. 50 like a, a category of thousands again yeah. that that's a that's an at scale problem really really tough to kind of manage and, and grow but when you start to do those incremental things over time like you said it makes such a huge difference yeah. um my initial question is I think a lot of people are going to ask is how often is too much again amazon wants to see some sort of consistency at least in the theory yeah. of that that's what the outside perspective would generally be um how often should i change it how often should i look at it um mm -hmm. or is consistency more in favor of amazon's algorithm maybe like what would you dispel in that notion dylan yeah so great question not many people bring this up um pricing activity if we just look at pricing activity, you're just changing your pricing, even on private label products where you have no competition, we've noticed that you can increase sales by one to 2%. Amazon likes activity. It likes to know that things are occurring and that it's not just sitting there, right? Because if you have a listing and there's hardly anything occurring on it, it's kind of stale in their mind, right? So the algorithm's saying, hey, there's no activity here. There's nothing. One, there's probably no sales. Two, there's nobody trying to make that change. That's a right. problem. No one's trying to drive traffic or make that. Yeah, it's a signal. Happen. Yeah, and so this is this brings up a good good segue as well. So the type of strategy we recommend. There's a lot of misconceptions uh, in the reselling space when it comes to how you how you should repraise. A lot of sellers, um, and what I used to believe myself is, you match the buy box. Why? Because we should all share it. No, you shouldn't. Um, the data literally disproves that. Um, what we recommend is what's called the oscillation strategy. And oscillation is just a wave. It goes up and down. Here's what we want to do. We want to ask the question, how do we increase sales, like volume of sales? Well, you do that by being in the buy box more. Okay, next question. How do you get in the buy box more? You have a better price. Amazon wants the cheapest price. That's really what they want. At the end of the day, if you look at the algorithm and what works, it's not necessarily like a massive decrease in price, but it's like a it's a decrease in price close enough to the current buy box, right? So you're not you're not just driving it down, but it's close enough. So, okay, we know basic supply and demand. I can lower your price and increase sales, right? Kind of a basic economics uh, perspective here. But the problem there is, um, yeah, I'm increasing sales, but I'm not necessarily increasing your profitability. So that's the second part, right? So to increase the volume of sales, we want to reprice below buy penny within a tight minimum and maximum range. I'm talking like five bucks. But once we reach our minimum price, we actually reprice to your max price. This resets the oscillation loop and then resets the average net profit per unit. So what we're not trying to do is say, okay, we're just going to lower it and then leave you there. And then your average is somewhere in between. What we want to say is, okay, how do we increase the volume while at least maintaining a healthy net profit per unit? Because you can't do both, right? A lot of sellers are like, hey, can you increase the volume of sales and my net profit per unit? No. <laughs> like economics yeah. doesn't, it, it kind of breaks, Magic doesn't right? exist in entrepreneurial world. Yeah. Yes. But I can get you close, right? I can at least say, hey, I can increase your sell-through rate while maintaining a healthy net profit per unit. And in some cases, we can increase it. It depends on how it's structured. Um, right. Cause if your min maxes are way too high, it's not going to work as well. If they're tight, but not too tight, then it, it works pretty well. So, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to repricing and more importantly, your pricing strategy, right? It's something to think through. So for us, we, we try to be opinionated and say, Hey, listen, we have thousands upon thousands of users. This is what the data shows us. <laughs> And listen, we've been Amazon sellers before. We were told, hey, if you reprice below by a penny, you know, 
we frown upon you and <laughs> you're not welcome here. And it's like, I thought that too, until we started a repricing company and realized that's actually highly inaccurate. Um, we've literally taken sellers who were matching the buy box, changed their strategy for two weeks, and they did double the amount of sales and maintain the same net profit per unit on average. That's incredible. Like, that's insane. Well, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm thinking through strategy and the more that you're talking through it, Dylan, the more that it makes more sense, right? Of mm -hmm. You hit the lows as quickly and effectively as you can, but minimize those because Amazon does like it when your product does sell more at a higher level. They want yeah. to get more, you know, sales and money in that capacity because obviously sure. they make more money. So if you can win those, those quick wins at the bottom, you obviously want to reset it as high as you can, as quickly as you can yep. once that ability does take place. So interesting model and obviously the rewards and the you know visibility is probably going to win out with that too. Very yep. cool. So how does this play in if I'm a seller at a certain capacity, does this look holistically at Amazon? Or are we looking across multiple channel? Where mm -hmm. do we, where do we kind of go from there as that gross for, for people who are scaling their business and growing, yeah. Hey, I'm in different marketplaces. I'm in all these different capacities. How does sure. that affect a dashboard or a system like you guys? Yeah. So we're primarily focused on the Amazon marketplace. That's kind of our bread and butter. It's what we really understand. Um, dot com. Yeah. Dot, dot com, dot CA and dot MX. So we're, we're in North America okay. primarily. North America. Exactly. So, you know, we did consider Walmart. We did consider uh, eBay. The, the differences here is when we looked at eBay's API, one, it's not great, <laughs> just to be honest. And two, the strategies are so vastly different. Um, I think we, we, we decided against eBay until we saw enough demand where our user base was saying, hey, like, I got to have it. We haven't really seen that. We, we actually are seeing a lot of people start flipping businesses on eBay and then go the FBA route because it's more volume based and it's more consistent. And it's less, I bought it for 20, I'm trying to sell it for 240 and I'm gonna hold it for two years in my basement, right? So kind of a different business model mentality there. Um, and then two on Walmart side, we're still waiting for it to grow. I mean, it's starting to like this, this past year really showed a lot of third-party sales growth there, but I think there's still a lot to be determined in terms of what incentive model does their algorithm use? What does that look like? So there's a lot more research that, that we want to put into that because, you know, when it comes to repricing, we're, we're literally changing your prices, right? <laughs> so there's a high barrier for, you know, there's a lot of criticality is what I'm saying, right? We want to make sure that when we're entering into a market, we fully know and we fully tested that what we have is going to work. Because at the end of the day, if it doesn't, it's irrelevant. Um, so we'll, we'll see. We haven't seen a whole lot of demand actually for going multi-channel in that regard. I would like to see that because I think it'd be cool. Um, but yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say too, it's also very important to be caught, I mean, be cognizant of the nature of because you're cha changing pricing almost at an automation. Again, yeah. there's two terms and rules and regulations and, and things like that. You guys abide by and barriers and make sure that there's your checks and balances and everything like that. But it, right. does that make it, does that make it scary for you to think that, Hey, one glitch in a system can really tank a business or like, how do you overcome that? Like that sure. trust factor of, Oh, it was supposed to be $77 and $75 instead of $7 and 50 cents. Like yeah. at any moment it could change in an instance and sure. someone jumps on it and they have a major loss in their hands. What, what do you guys do to overcome that? Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot of, anxiety there when we were first building it out because there has been a, another company in our space that took every skew in their system down to one penny all at once and massive losses occurred so we're like hey we've seen that happen <laughs> let's make sure that doesn't so i, hope I was on amazon at that time jeez was, yeah i mean just a well and i know the glitch like they there's nothing that the consumer needs to do it's all on the seller it's if the yeah. api is granted access that's that's no one's yeah. fault but the sellers yeah. So for us, we, we thought through where are the safety nets? So we actually have a three hour trigger to ensure that no, no listing becomes scale. So repricing is, is reactive. And I think this is kind of the second part that we're, you know, that, that I missed out on earlier, which is we finally came back. Yeah. Yeah. See, it back. all circles around, <laughs> it all circles around, um, is, you know, how often is too much for us? It's reactive, right? You can have proactive repricing, um, and you tend to not see it as much. Um, that's more of like a manual pricing strategy. But for us, it's reactive. It's basically like a price change occurred. Look at the algorithm. Should we change it? If yes, push that change back after calculating it. So it's, it's, it's really not about like 
how much is too much is really about how much is enough, right? Because you need a, you want to be a hundred percent reactive. That's that's the rate we're looking at here. Um, so super super important. Now on the safety net side, there are listings that are just not as active. There's not a lot of competition, not a lot of price changes, right? So if we're being reactive. We need a way to proactively just kind of be like, hey, nudge. <laughs> so every three hours, if there is not an orga organic price change, we'll raise your price by one penny and immediately take it back down. We're just pushing activity to Amazon to be like, hey, we good? <laughs> like Amazon has problems. I mean, there were days I remember I was walking into a final, actually. MWS went down for three days. Sure. All of it. Even in Seller Central, it could even change your price stand still. Right. So, but our system will still ping and just be like, we good. <laughs> like, is this still here? Are you sure? Um, so we'll do that just to make sure that, Hey, things are staying active. We're all good here. Um, right. Then minimum prices are incredibly important. We don't force max prices. Um, I, I recommend them, but what we do is we say, okay, there's going to be three major things to occur before we'll even consider submitting a price change. One, you got to have a strategy because otherwise I can't tell the system exactly what it needs to do. It's just going to sit there. Uh, two, you got to actually explicitly say, I want to reprice this SKU. So we don't say reprice the entire account. You can certainly do that if you want, but we do it at the SKU level because some SKUs you might want to, some SKUs you might not want to. And number three, you got to have a min price. Otherwise, by default, it's zero, and that's not good. So we allowed within the strategy builder for you to automatically calculate and set a minimum price. So we import costs from inventory labs. You can also manually import it. And we'll say, uh, how do you want to set this? You might want to say, at minimum, I'm willing to accept a 20% ROI. Fantastic. We'll take your costs. We'll take the fees coming from the Amazon listing, the seller fees. We'll calculate what that should be. And we'll say, great, here's your minimum price. We don't go below that. Right. That way, if a fee even changes, it automatically gets updated, right? So we recommend that that our users automatically set their, their minimum prices because costs can change, as an example. Fees can change as an example. And you want to make sure that you don't have to remember these things and jump in and manually make changes. Just let the system do that itself for you. Well, yeah, just notifications like as of yesterday, I believe Amazon said. Uh, yeah. <laughs> light, lightweight, um, you know, shipping. Actually, they, they increased the cost, I think, to $8 is what yep. it was. Referral um, fee for like uh, yeah. lawn mowers went up. <laughs> Oddly enough, random, random, but okay. Yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I think there's a huge market that's like probably pretty disappointing out there, but no, yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It, I mean, that mattered for a lot of like lighter items, again, pricing going up, how to get yeah. under that without, you know, really crushing you in terms of that. So that, I think that yeah. makes sense. Um, maybe for the person who's like in the world of which every Amazon seller is a customer of ours, how do you combat the notion of somebody in your category, with the same product, very similar notion compete self-competing with the self to the bottom of anything how, how do you fight potentially another customer with the same repricing tool or a different repricing mm -hmm. tool to fight each other off to the basement essentially like that yeah. would never yeah, you would never want that to happen but like worst case yeah. scenario what if that does happen it's a good question um we we've had users be like hey i think this other seller on a listing is an aura user can you can you tell us i'm like no <laughs> like absolutely we can't do that you're right. There's, there's a privacy issue here. And so, you know, I, I played around for one afternoon like, okay, well, what if we, what if obviously we would know that, should we do something? Like, is there an opportunity here to be like, basically be like, Hey, us two, we're actually both using or let's do something together. The problem here is that that makes a vast assumption that both parties agree to doing that. And that's not necessarily the case from the conversations I've had. I've had some sellers be like, yeah, that'd be awesome. Let's just ride this thing up. And I've had other sellers be like, I really don't care. Do what I want. <laughs> right? And so strategies are not always the same. So we have pre-configured strategies. You can also build your own custom strategy. So there's a few underlying assumptions that make that not work, right? One, the strategy being deployed. Some sellers are going to hear me say reprice below by penny. The oscillation strategy literally makes more money. It makes more sense. We have the data to prove it. And they'll say, that sounds great. I'm still going to match the buy, the buy box. Okay, so now we don't have as much competition. We're still going to go down right at, at a certain rate, but not as quickly. So that changes the economics a bit. Number two, um, buy costs are different, right? Just because we're both selling at 20 bucks. I'm, I may have paid 10, you may have paid five. So now where you're willing and able to profitably goes vastly different than where I'm willing and able to profitably go. Right. And so it's hard for me to make that decision for users to just be like, Hey, you're both using aura. 
mm-hmm. let's do something cool. Well, it makes I, sense I, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. almost almost impossible for all the identical natures to be like all yeah. the features to be. There's identical. also a weird potential liability issue for price fixing. <laughs> when you think about it, it's like that's kind of what we're talking about here. Like it sounds great, but in you know, from a legal perspective, I'm not sure if that's a viable option either. Right. Well, and I guess in the case of in that case too, if they have a repressing structure, again, different things are going to win out at different points, right? Again, yeah. Inventory fluctuates all the time. It's uh reviews, it's organic sure. traffic, it's pay traffic. There's too many, yeah. I'm assuming, variables in which Amazon is pulling from that nothing's gonna be literally at a standstill. It could be, like you said, if you if you surveyed two people on this podcast, me and you, and do people go and look at other options of buy box? No, that's not the case. Or maybe it is the case, two out of two or zero out of sure. two. It's just sure. it's just that it that is the factor. Um yeah. but again, it could be inventory location, it could be all those things. So but yeah. that being said, is it like what what did this year really sh- show you guys, Dylan? Of what is was there a lot more issues in the space, or is there a lot more opportunity? Like what what did twenty twenty one share and show Aura? Yeah, um, it's a good question. There's actually a lot there, so let me let me try to pick a few. Um, Welcome to the podcast. One, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So one, there's a few things. Okay, so the algorithm itself didn't necessarily change, but it did fluctuate in terms of the the shipping or fulfillment method right so at at peak covid let's put it that way um merchant fulfilled offers started to to outpace fba offers and it's just they're like hey listen you can't even ship things in so (laughs) fin offers can ship two days now i mean they, they figured it out it's all good right so merchant fulfilled offers used to be kind of like look down upon where if you're FBA, you, you could reprice above two, 3% and still win the buy box over them and crush them. It's not necessarily the case anymore. So for a handful of months, we had to let our users know like, Hey, if you're FBA, you need to be repricing below, like not above. And we had a lot of sellers be like, well, that's just fundamentally wrong. I'm like, well, that assumption just changed. <laughs> I mean, we can see it now it's, it's balanced back out. So Right. Shipping time, shipping and handling time is incredibly important in the algorithm. So if a merchant fulfilled offer, especially in what's considered a regional buy box. Um, so just meaning that both parties have inventory. Like if I'm in Massachusetts, there's a Massachusetts fulfillment center, both offers one FBA, one merchant fulfilled has inventory here. I'm probably going to see a slightly different buy box than the, what's considered the global buy box. And we can't reprice regionals because they don't make it available via the API. But if there's two day free shipping on FBA, but the merchant fulfilled offer can do it in one day. Merchant fulfilled is better. The FBA badge is nice, but in some situations it doesn't matter because what's the upside, right? You're, you're getting it one day or two days. It's the same thing. So you, you've started to see a, a kind of rebalancing in terms of which one wins out. It depends. It's not one or the other. It's not 50, 50. It just depends on the situation, but it used to be way more clear cut because merchant fulfilled offers the way they were shipping was going to be five to six, seven days. Right. So they just immediately lost out. Number two, you're seeing as you always have, I say this every year, but it's all, it tends to always be the case. Thousands of new sellers join every single day. Right. Mm-hmm. So people are like, okay, Amazon saturated. It's not true. I was just reading the marketplace or marketplace pulse uh yep. review. Right. And they're like, hey, listen, are there are there less third party resellers on the platform as a percentage? Yeah. Yeah. But let's talk about how many have been added. <laughs> like there are more. But the interesting bit is Amazon's a thing where it's a low barrier to entry, but it's a higher barrier to succeeding because you're still mm-hmm. building a business, right? It's not magic internet money, right? It's not right. like I just buy a bunch of things this, over We're not email. in 2014. Yeah, we're not in 2014 yeah. anymore where you put literally any product, no rules yes. apply, getting smarter. Right. Again, Amazon's focused more on brands, being yep. smarter with inventory. I mean, the list goes on and on. We've we've seen yep. it evolve in this podcast literally over the and last And it will continue. Years. Yeah. Yeah, it'll continue continue to legitimize, right? And so basically you had people building quote unquote businesses that were really just side hustles that they're just throwing things in to now to really do well, you have to consider your seller feedback rating. You got to consider your inventory, your cash flow. Like you got to run a real business and that's tough for a lot of sellers. So I I tend to say, yeah, there's a lot of new sellers here, but how many are you actually competing with? It's not that many Yep. in reality. My favorite game, Dylan, is, is when I see a product 
see a lot of reviews and then I actually go through uh, the seller information, obviously, like when they came into market, their actual life yeah. and value of their customer reviews. And then all of a sudden you see, oh, they haven't been around for a year. All of a sudden they right. have 300,000 reviews. And then you're like, it, us in the industry, we, we see that and you're like, this is, this is where people consumer wise, it's really tough to understand yeah. and, and see. And I do this with my wife all the time. I say, look at their go, go click here, go there, go look and see if they've been around for this long. Look at their average customer reviews yep. as a business. And it, again, it's not, it's not depending on where they're located. It's just overall consistency of them as a business, what they're putting into yep. it. And again, there's so many new business out there with different products that are great and fantastic. There's also mm -hmm. a lot that are crap. So yeah, right. Just, just and, have and, to kind of sift through it all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and prices have, have begun to stabilize from what I've seen, right? We used to see a lot more swings in a lot higher prices, right? Because arbitrage specifically used to be huge margins and people used to be like, oh, I'm not going to do wholesale, small margins. I do RA. I'm like, okay, we'll see how long that lasts, right? Because eventually you have enough competition arbitrage. Like we, I had an entire class in college on arbitrage mainly currency, but still it's like you look at any arbitrage opportunity, eventually it starts to slim down over time because the market becomes more efficient. That's pretty common. Um, that's not to say it's not a good business model. It's just, you need to right. be aware of that and set well, scalability. We, Correct. Yeah, we talked about Scale this and volume. Again, scalability, very difficult. You don't control your own inventory levels. Yep. Um, time costs, all those things yeah. really affect you in terms of, again, valuation of your business. But a lot of people talk sure. about when exiting or selling a brand, retail arbitrage versus private label, one you have more control over than the other yeah and that's yeah. your inventory level but here's the thing about repricing right it's like repricing to me there is no silver bullet in terms of software for the amazon world right it just it doesn't exist in any business a good software is a multiplier of good foundations so if you really understand the business model you choose whether it's wholesale ra oa private label it doesn't matter if you really understand how to make that work at a fundamental level meaning you understand how to source products correctly. You understand how to effectively buy things at a good cost. Man, you throw repricing on top of that, it's game changer. It really, it truly is. But if you are overpaying for everything and like have don't and don't care about your seller reviews, no repricing tool is going to help. So I try to let sellers know when they're starting to have the conversation of, hey, should I jump into a repricing tool now or should I wait? I'm like, let's really look at where you're at, right? If you're at 25 SKUs consistently, if in, I say 25 because if you're doing wholesale, I mean, you could do a quarter billion a year with 12 SKUs, right? So I'm kind of factoring that in, but 25 is a good range. If you're doing at least $5,000 a month in sales consistently over the last two to three months, yeah, now it's a good time to have that conversation, but you also need to consider how much room do I have here, right? You got to be able to, to fluctuate a bit. Um, when you have 50 cents in margin, you're going to struggle. And that's where a lot of sellers get stuck is they overbuy because the buy box was up here, but they didn't look at the average. See, here's a, here's an interesting tidbit for a lot of sellers. Don't look at the current buy box. We just got done talking about how it, it, it oscillates itself, right? <laughs> like whether you're doing it with a repricing tool or just the marketplace it, it itself, it's going to fluctuate a bit. So you need to look at the average buy box over the last 60. I mean, you can look at the last 30, depending on how deep in the SKU you're going. If you're buying five units, 30 is probably plenty. Um, for wholesale, I would do thousands of units. So I'm going to look at 90, 120. And I'm looking at the average because I'm just going to assume I'm going to get the average. <laughs> I know some are going to be a little bit higher, some a little bit lower, but I'm going to average out right here. If I'm still profitable here with a lot of margin, I'm good, right? So you start to think through your, your systems, right? The way I try to like shift the perspective with an Amazon business is just simplify the systems you source. How do you do that? How do you mitigate risk here? How do you make good buying decisions consistently? Like have that written down in an SOP, even if it's just for yourself. Two, you have your prep and logistics, right? Whether you're using a prep center, like when I did wholesale, I never touched my inventory. It all went to a prep center. I had a process there. If you're doing it in-house, that's fine as well, but have a system down pat. One, to ensure that what you're doing is effective, but also efficient, right? You want to focus on effectiveness first, otherwise you become efficiently ineffective, right? So we go effectiveness first, then efficiency for scale. Then on the back end, you have sales. Now, a lot of sellers get stuck in this mentality of, well, it's Amazon. They just take care of it for me. They set you up for sales. They give you the demand, but it's up to you to fully capture as much of that demand as you can. 
that's where repressing comes into play. That's where when we set up the right strategies, and I typically recommend the oscillation strategy as well as a liquidation strategy. A lot of people don't like to hear the term liquidate, but listen, we make buy, bad buying decisions and we need our yeah, capital back a sometimes. Stinkers, a lot of stinkers out there, man. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you're like, hey, at this point, I just want my capital back. <laughs> We're good. That's okay. Right. So we want to have that ready to go so we can just flip a switch, say, or deal with that. Get me my capital back. We're good to go. Let me redeploy it into some new inventory. What we end up having here is, is a beautiful process, right? Where you just know that if you make a great buying decision on the front end of that system, everything else is taken care of. And then what's nice is you don't have to worry about like, what are my prices right now? It's taken care of. It's like hiring an, an incredible team member that owns one area of the business and just crushes it. You're like, I don't have to deal with that anymore. And now all of a sudden I have like an extra four hours a week. <laughs> where we, where can I you know, redeploy that time with a high ROI, typically sourcing. So it, it's a good thing to be able to plug in to free up your time be effective with your sales and then redeploy that time back over into sourcing. Great. I totally agree. I think that's yep. what we use in the same context where we talk about all the time. I know at ping pong, you know, obviously you're effectively not waiting on product anywhere, waiting for a currency conversion. Um, you get that money in their hands quicker. You get your inventory quicker. It all works in cyclical yes. nature. So a hundred percent agree with that. Uh, Dylan, obviously the, you know, the hour kind of goes back so quickly when you talk, I know. You get excited about it. Uh, I'm, yep. I'm curious for you guys, like, well, where does, where does the 2022 kind of go from here? Like, what does, what does the year look like? How do you continue to evolve mm -hmm. and grow on that as, um, all as a business, as sellers continue sure. to evolve and adapt in this, in this space? Yeah, it's a good question. One of the features we came out with last year is called workflows. So we realized there was still some work needed to be done in Aura for a user, right? You still had to jump in. So we automatically import your listings as they become available. Uh, if you're using Inventory Lab and integrated, you know, we'll automatically pull in your cost, but you still had to go in, set a strategy, toggle repricing on. If you wanted to make changes on like a routine, you had to do it yourself. So we built workflows, which is essentially like, Hey, if this, then that, but just for aura. So you have a few different, you have two action or I'm sorry, two trigger blocks and then four action blocks. So you can kind of mix and match there. You can say when a new listing comes in, set this strategy, we have a, a, a filter block as well. So you can say, you know, if it's this marketplace or if the SKU contains Walmart, as an example, um, apply strategy a versus B and then toggle it on. So we structured it to where, you know, that last hour a week, you might have been playing around in your account, just doing routine things. You now just tell Aura, here's my rules. Here's what I tend to do. Just do it for me to free up even more time. So we're really thinking through, you know, how do we save our users even more time to be more effective, right? So, cause again, going back to my previous comment, once you have certain systems in place that are autonomous, that frees you up to not even have the cognitive load of thinking about all that stuff, but to go deeper into the areas that are really going to have a massive impact that you can control, which is going to be sourcing, to be honest. So we're seeing a lot of money come into the space. I think that's very important. Um, you know, you and I were talking about aggregators, obviously a lot of, a lot of companies coming in, buying private label brands, buying Amazon software, but people are interested in the space again. That's really good. And so I tell sellers, you don't have a sourcing problem necessarily, and you don't really have, a capital problem if you understand what you're doing. And so it's realizing where in that spectrum you're at as a seller and then solving that problem, reverse engineering it. For us, it's really, I mean, we've, we continue to grow. <laughs> um, it's thinking through new features that, that makes sense, um, that, that help us stand out of course, but we, we tend to spend a lot of time on education. That's really where we've spent a ton, a ton of time, especially me as a founder, um, is doing things like this and geeking out and, and trying to help new sellers understand that, not everything you're told by other sellers is necessarily the correct thing. Um, and that's okay. It happens, but sharing data, I think, and I hope that a lot more tools in our space that are data driven, like we are, are able to say, Hey, this is really what we see. And this is our stance on it, take it or leave it. But, you know, we want to make sure that every Amazon seller has enough information to make a, a good informative decision that's going to positively impact their business. Um, that's, that's key for me. That's awesome. Well, I mean, yeah. that's all, that's all great news, obviously for entrepreneurs entering the space, people who want to grow. I think yep. a lot of people in my theory is now is 2020, 2022, I know, right? <laughs> I'm going to get the year right. 2022 is going to be a year of a lot of growth, 
Well, yeah. not if if it's not on Amazon, they're getting on Amazon. If it's you're on Amazon, it's different marketplaces. It's international growth, it's different marketplaces. Yep. This is going to help you kind of consolidate those efforts and instead of spending your time scattered throughout, really focus on what matters. That's yep. really cool that you guys are you're kind of making that wave and self-funded, which I saw on your website, yeah. which is really cool. So you're not you're not relying on other people. You're kind of walking the walking, talking the talk, all yep. all on its own. So congrats on the success. How do Thank people you. get in touch with you, uh, Dylan, sure. or the team there if they want to learn more, kind of test you guys out? Yeah, so uh, we have a 14-day ungated trial. We don't ask for a credit card. We're $97 a month. So you can jump in at GoAura. That's G-O-A-U-R-A.com. So GoAura.com. What we tend to recommend is, hey, listen, jump in to a free trial. It's no credit card, make an extra hundred bucks on us, and then it's paid for itself. Um, if you want to reach out to me directly, we're happy to get you onboarded personally, um, either with myself or Finn. Just send me an email at Dylan, D-I-L-L-O-N, at Vendrive, V-E-N-D-R-I-V-E.com. Um, and we'll get you sorted out. If you have questions, if you're like, hey, I've been wanting to jump into repricing for a while. It just feels overwhelmed. Can you help me break something down? Absolutely. We'll jump into a Zoom call with you and get you sorted out. That's awesome. Lots of great yep. tools out there. I'm just glad that, you know, people are kind of keeping each other honest. Competition is yeah. a good thing. There's exactly. a lot of fish in the sea. So that's fantastic to, to see another business like that, again, continuing to grow. So congrats on the success. Thanks for coming on. I call people friends of the show once you come on and make it through an hour with me. So now you're a friend of the show. Anytime you can nice. uh, want to talk on another uh, topic like this, feel free to let me know and I'll get you back Perfect. on here. Awesome. Well, do, Ryan. I appreciate you having awesome. me on. Thanks, Dylan. Thank you so much. Thanks. Again, thank you everyone else for hopping on Crossover Commerce episode 207. Again, this is my corner of the internet. As you heard, great stuff from Dylan Carter over at goora.com. Again, go check them out. That's goora.com. Uh, all the links are going to be in the show notes or just in the comment section if you're watching this live on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Um, guys, we're, we're midway through the week. It's Wednesday. Again, two more episodes that are coming on crossover commerce this week. What does that mean? You need to subscribe to our social channels. That's going to be on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitter. Again, go ahead and just search crossover commerce with Ryan Kramer, or you can just follow ping pong payments on LinkedIn as well. Later this week, we have actually tomorrow, another Bostonian, I should say, a uh, company from Boston. He's a uh, perch going to be talking about the aggregator 2022 trends tech talent and turbulence they just announced a really cool hire former amazonian as their cro we're going to be talking a little bit through that just trends from one of the bigger aggregators in the space um nathan over there and then on friday we're going to be talking about omni convert customer lifetime value in e-commerce so much more content to come your way again and my week is full, but I want to make sure that we bring you the best and brightest in the Amazon e-commerce space. That's why this podcast exists. That's why you are tuned in. So if you want to let us know what you think about the podcast, go ahead and put it in the comment section below or in the show notes of the podcast, wherever you might listen to your favorite shows. That being said, I'm Ryan Kramer with Crossover Commerce. We'll catch you guys next time on another episode. Take care. <music>